the Luminous Possibilities Podcast. We offer a diversity of perspectives from many fields of medicine, esoteric and ancient wisdom, and subtle energy, arts, and sciences. Find deeply fulfilling pathways for co-creating yourself, life, and human communities around you. Find inspiring attunements to your own optimal living roadmap, true authentic self, and the most radiant frequency for living life to the fullest. Hello, I'm Keenan White. I'm a host and co-host of Luminous Possibilities. I'm here with Bunan Brown, Reverend Bunan Brown. He's a Zen priest, um, ordained as a Zen priest, and um, he is a um, polyvagal attachment system specialist. Mm-hmm. Or how would you word that, Bunan? Uh, attachment repair specialist, and then polyvagal is one of the one of the um, key pieces that I try to teach people of how to how to use to really be with their their system and be with other people yeah so one of the things i'm i'm excited to talk about and, and welcome it's nice to be here with you, yeah, thank you for having me. yeah you're welcome yeah. um i think what we're going to dive into today is really about attachment system and more of an embodied experience in some of the spiritual awakening practices mm-hmm. um so we're just going to let it flow and let it go where we need to go um we can really start anywhere i was um really kind of thinking about like how you got to where you are mm-hmm. um today what what led you to become a zen priest and um how does that tie into your your role in in the integral world as well mm-hmm. yeah I, those things are pretty pretty intimately related but the thing that got me on my path originally back when i was started when i was 25 was just my own suffering um i grew up in a family that doesn't have a lot of emotional literacy and so I just wasn't in touch with my own inner experience um, up until that point like the only emotional states I had were okay and fine and that was that was that was about it <laughs> a fairly limiting experience it sounds sort of somewhat familiar to me and mm-hmm. people ask you oh how are you doing like, fine mm-hmm. I'm good or yeah and now yeah there's a little bit more of an expansive yeah, yeah experience was, yeah and knowing your system in the ways that I do and others more than just okay and fine. And um, I'm very thankful that, you know, I discovered that there's more than just okay and fine. Um, but it took the real, like, you know, painful realization that my life just wasn't working. And I had to make some pretty big shifts. And very fortunately, like when I decided to like shift my life, I lived very close to a metaphysical bookstore back in St. Louis. And I had a whole bunch of free time on my hands now that I wasn't like going out to bars and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Realized I needed to fill it with something because I couldn't just like sit there and watch TV. And yeah, got back into reading. Um, uh, pretty quickly after that, it was probably within like the first year, I came across integral theory, thankfully, because I've been looking at all these different um, spiritual traditions. Like I started off in the sort of Western scientific lens, looking at quantum physics and the secret and all that fun stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, very quickly, I just came across integral theory and I was like, oh, what's this? And that, that opened up my, my worldview pretty quickly and um, took a pretty deep dive into that work, read a lot of Ken's materials and started off with Cosmic Consciousness, the audio program, the sounds true, yeah, okay. which is still, I'd say, one of the best introductions you can get to his work out there. And yeah. Through looking, like through looking at that lens and seeing what different traditions were out there and what 
I wanted to go through, like I came across Buddhism and then came across Zen and that really was speaking to me in the way that mm. um, I was looking at um, spirituality in my experience at that point. And it was nice. quite literally through Integral Life, mm. um, the website, the portal for the Integral World that I came across um, Junpo Roshi, who um, ultimately became uh, my teacher, a Zen teacher and a person that ordained me. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. We, we share sort of similar stories because I was, when I sort of started entering into, huh, wait, what is like really evolution and what is the evolution of consciousness? I found integral theory and Kelvin Wilbur mm -hmm. and I sort of took a little turn and, you know, found DT Suzuki and Alan Watts and mm -hmm. started getting into a lot of the Zen uh, studies and looking into that. And it was just like, wow, this is really what resonates. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, integral life is a whole um that's a whole other thing too what have you spent some time in, in boulder with various figures in the integral world as well because yeah, um, i remember you're saying you're working and hanging out there for years i think mm -hmm. yeah so we had an integral salon back in st louis which was just the handful of us that got together and just wanted to nerd out around those topics and um, kind of one by one, a bunch of us started moving out to Boulder, Colorado, because it's you know, known as sort of the, the mecca, the hub for the integral world, because you know, Ken used to live here and he's down in Denver. And so much of the material that's put out was put out from the was the Boulder integral at that point, which became the um, integral center mm -hmm. after, they, after they sort of switched um, modes. And I came out here partially to go to uh, Europa to con continue my studies in yoga and just self-cultivation and like it's very fortunate that right like a few months after i moved out here is when the integral center opened and i got to be a part of that and so from the from the day day one um, was part of the integral center community council and was sort of sitting on the the cusp of like purely integral world and then the authentic relating world which is what came together in the integral center and took what in a, we'll say in a lot of ways, was a very cerebral exploration of mm -hmm. like, okay, let's look at all these maps and the and how they relate to spirituality, and actually brought it into the into the Wii space. And so, got to be around a, like a, you know a lot of big beautiful names in the inner mm -hmm. world, doing a lot of stuff with Diane Hamilton and um, Doshin Roshi, who's another one of um, another one of my teachers who runs the organization Integral Zen. So it's pretty it's mm -hmm. explicitly. Uh, integral and Zen combined mm. there, and then nice. going to a lot of the like, integral spiritual experiences and stuff like that. So I got a, got a lot of exposure to that community through the different conferences and workshops and retreats. Nice. You could spend quite a bit of time on that, but I think there's there's other places that are a little juicier to explore. Totally amazing. Um, and then, yeah, it makes me think like, I mean, there's probably a certain point where you're like, all right, well, with this being as heady as it is, mm -hmm. like where where do I need to fill in the gaps? Yeah. And for me, like taking a pretty heady approach to my spirituality, <laughs> <laughs> exploring you know many modalities and um, philosophies and perspectives, you know, on an intellectual level, and, and then finding attachment theory was really kind of like wow, like this is really the next step for me is really like bringing my awareness more into my body. Mm -hmm. Even as a body worker, I've been almost doing that for about 10 years. And so there's a there is a lot of that, but it's a different experience when you're really you're understanding the the whole polyvagal 
you know, the ventral, mm -hmm. dorsal, sympathetic responses in the body. Um, so I definitely want to uh, steer the conversation and hearing, you know, about your perspective on that. Um, for those listeners who don't necessarily know what integral is, how would you define that or explain that? Mm. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lofty question there. Um, so for, let's say my definition of integral theory, uh, it's an approach that has made a really lovely attempt to sort of classify and put structure into all the ways of human knowledge and human experience and the ways that we are in the world. And let's try to look at all of the different domains that are um, valid onto themselves and can't be collapsed into other areas. And so yeah. the, there's a lot of ways that like scientific materialism tries to collapse a whole bunch of facts into it's just material. It's just the, the, the mind is an artifact of the brain and that's it. And Integral took a really beautiful approach to be like, that's not actually true. Here's the ways that we can look at reality. And these are the ways, these are the different domains where knowledge is valid in this domain, but it's not valid over here. So we can't collapse the truth of one domain into another. And it mm -hmm. provides all of these beautiful maps to show how all these different ways of looking at the world relate to each other. Yeah, there, there is sort of like a way I feel like Integral has really um, woven disciplines and, and thought processes and, and ideas and about, you know, the human being, about consciousness mm -hmm. um, and, and connected them. It's not mm -hmm. like there's an island over here and this sits over here and this is this and, you mm -hmm. know, which is really that kind of mechanistic, you know, some, I guess, scientific reductionism could apply there in a certain way where... Mm -hmm things are reduced to a certain part where really integral is like, you know, bringing everything more in a holistic lens and mm -hmm. synthesizing. Yeah. It can, it can show the relationship of where these different ways of viewing the world are accurate and where they might not be and how they relate to each other and, and how to be much more inclusive in mm -hmm. those conversations. Cause once you can actually see all the factors that go into any particular domain, whether it's like environmental issues or social justice or spiritual development or psychological development or just scientific inquiry you can see where like what domain of knowledge is that valid and how does it relate to these other areas and how can we have a bigger conversation that's inclusive of all these different things and one of the most important pieces i think out of that world view is the developmental stages that we can go through and it's one of the let's say one of the things that's sort of least understood inside of modern culture or just conventional culture mm -hmm. is that, oh, there's these different stages of development that our consciousness goes through, like mm -hmm. quite literally psychological development. And when we're at these different stages of development is that's how we view the world. And these different mm -hmm. stages have different values and different understandings and they relate to the world in different ways. And one of the more you know commonly understood ones is the difference between re like Republicans and Democrats. Like those are different developmental <laughs> stages. Yeah, I was just having this conversation the other day <laughs> in, in politics in the context of spiral dynamics, mm -hmm. which is spiral dynamics is really just a way of color coding these different stages mm -hmm. of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, let's say one of the more popular 
versions inside of integral theory because integral just looks at all these different maps and she, like shows them how they how they fit together like it's literally flipping through integral psychology the other day and the back chunk of the book is just can just put all these different maps and show them how they relate to each other hmm. with all these different like psychological developmental maps that are out there and there's, there's quite a few amazing <laughs> yeah yeah well i'm sure we can take a deeper dive into all that but it seems like we you know maybe the more valuable thing might be bringing in your more recent present feelings about what, um, how polyvagal and the attachment stuff fits yeah. in, because right now you're considering yourself an attachment uh, repair specialist. Repair specialist. Mm -hmm. And we've done some work together and it's been, it's been awesome. I mean, it's, it's definitely like, all right, like this really is like amazing. I mean, I, cause I've seen, just after a few sessions of, of working with you and, and really feeling the, it's almost like an afterglow. It's, a, it's like an afterglow of feeling more relaxed. Uh, I think I've been even sleeping a little bit better. It's like my nervous system is um, really deepening into like a sense of safety, which is, um, which is in some ways paramount because we're, we're oftentimes running through our, our worlds and our lives and our, in our relationships and at work sort of activated without, you know, the, the entirety of our nervous system on online. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you have some different language for that, but it seems like, you know, one of the biggest, you know, downsides to living a life where you're not really, you're not really in a thriving state, you're in the survival mode mm -hmm. and anything kind of below your, your diaphragm and kind of, well, really below the heart, maybe below the throat sometimes <laughs> too, gets kind of shut down. And yeah. so people, you know, showing up with some gut issues and, mm -hmm. you know, there's all kinds of things that can actually happen health-wise um, that are not so pretty when we're activated and when we're, we're running more of a sympathetic, which is sort of like the fight or flight mobilized mm -hmm. um, state. Yeah. But how would you break that down or where, yeah. where do you want to start with it all? Well, we can tie in the conversation we were just having and like really bring it into that of like similar to you. Um, like I looked at my practice um, a number of years ago and realized it was very, um, it was very heady. And one of the reasons I went to Europa and got a degree in yoga um, versus like going into psychology or religious studies is because I wanted to start bringing my practice actually into my body and tying that in with the integral center where all of those practices were, a lot of the practices were relational. They were we space oriented, like, like circling is like how authentic and present can we be with somebody and what are all the streams of information that we can pay attention to when we're with somebody. Mm -hmm. And like the yoga practice, like really helped me develop proprioception, which is like, okay, where's my body in space? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's helpful. That's a, that's a good start for somebody that's particularly uh, cerebral, right? Sure. And it's been helpful for me too. Yeah. Respect, yeah. yeah. And then through the contemplative practices, um, like in my, in my Zen tradition, we have something called the Mondo Zen process, which is a intersubjective practice where it's we're basically knee to knee for a couple hours at a time, exploring the, nature of mind and space and ego structures um, directly, mm -hmm. not as a, not as a you know, cerebral exercise, but as mind to mind. And out of that, out of the circling practices, out of um, a whole bunch of other things I was doing, I kept be coming up against uh, basically like trauma and 
shadow and pieces like that and just kept getting more and more interested in what was what was going on there and we'll say long story short like <laughs> and through years of studying practice a lot of time in luminous i eventually came across uh polyvagal and polyvagal theory which is originally um, started by stephen porges um, which is he's a little bit uh, notoriously um, hard to penetrate his his readings but um, recently, there's a woman named Deb Dana who has a few books out and an audio program that is what really turned me on to, to polyvagal because we, like most people are familiar with the states of fight, flight, and freeze, like they're aware of that, but inside of polyvagal, what's actually important is the state of safety. And that's what Deb references that it as, is the science of safety. And in my world, like that's the important part because we're, we're sitting inside of like the most complex structures that we know of in the universe. Like the human brain is incredibly complex and we're brought into this world without a manual of what to do with it or how it operates. And her first book, Polyvagal Theory and Therapy is one of the few books I've come across that is a handbook for that. It's like, we all have these nervous systems. We all have these, um, our, polyvagal nervous system that is all about keeping us safe and detecting threat. And that is primary in our experience. It's a foundational part of our system. And it, the polyvagal, the vagus nerve runs through all three aspects of our brain and really operates our behavior on a very, very real level. As uh, Deb says in, in her work is that story follows state. And so our, our mind states, the stories that our, that our brain likes to present to us um, are influenced first by where our actual state is. Are we, are we safe or do we feel threatened? And what do those states actually mean? So if we feel threatened, our whole biology shifts, our whole, that whole system changes and we're actually projecting, we're looking for threat. And so we're projecting threat onto everything in a, in a, way to actually stay safe and to ensure our survival for the coming generations. And so being able to know that, like have intimacy with those systems and to know that, oh, if I don't feel safe, I'm gonna feel some sort of threat in the world and that's gonna be coloring my experience. You know, it's a, it's a pretty important thing to know. Absolutely, and it seems, you know, we you're really, if you're telling the story or you're coming up with some story in your mind or you're sharing that with someone else, it's an interpretation. Mm -hmm. So it's not even necessarily what's going on. And I mean, I think one of the key pieces is the projection, right? You know, we, we tend to project whatever is we think is going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's such an animal instinctual. Well, if we're, um, if we're not tapped into the actual felt experience of what's going on in our body and it's really intimate, like, really basic way, which is also really complex at the same time, um, we can be missing most of what's happening in our experience. Because our they, they've done all, all sorts of studies and they, like it's shown that our left brain, our representational mind, will just, it can you know, sort of make up stories around what's actually happening for us. And that might not be true. It might not actually have anything to do with what's going on and there's, there's a lot of complexity that goes into that conversation, but there's 
what I find so valuable about the polyvagal approach is that we can learn how to become intimate with our systems, our actual nervous system. Be like, wow, I don't feel safe. And we've, we can do the work to know what it takes to get us back to a place of safety. And a lot of people, um, a lot of the time, don't feel safe because our society isn't actually sort of geared around that, or we're coming in with a lot of a lot of trauma, you know, particularly a lot of attachment trauma, which sort of rewires our system to be on the lookout for for threat, mm -hmm. whether it's internal or external, um, most of the time. And so, training people how to have that level of intimacy with their nervous system, know what the what it feels like to actually be safe and connected with another human being. That's, you know, that's a pretty good state. It is a great state, yeah. <laughs> it, can, it, can, it can get good. It can versus, get good, yeah. Versus what it feels like when it's like, wow, I'm in a state of, of sympathetic arousal, which is the fight or flight, or I'm in a state of dorsal, which is the um, immobilization and freeze. And being able to discern what that actually feels like in our system, being able to see it in our loved ones too, and being able to come back to a place of regulation or co-regulation is key and that's um, a lot of different approaches and systems and schools of thought out there in practice are all trying to do that and they're sort of coming at it from different ways but if you really just understand the basically the neurobiology underneath it in really easy ways which is one of the reasons I like Deb's work because it's actually approachable and digestible and it's it's not complicated um, you can see how all these different systems are actually just trying to work on calming our nervous systems down so we can be in a place of safety and then actually be in a place of openness and therefore connection yeah yeah connected to i mean not necessarily people but connected to your world and connected to your experience connected to the relationship we take to everything whether mm -hmm. it's like the pencil on your desk or you know the animal next to you or your pet or or a person that walks in um i i've been I tend, I have tended to in my life, go my own way. And I'm like, oh, well, I can just do that myself. <laughs> and there, I mean, perhaps that's a cultural influence and in, in a conditioning. I mean, there's many factors that may have caused me to develop that sense of self-sufficiency. Um, I wonder what your perspective is on self-sufficiency. Cause mine, mine recently has been kind of like, huh, maybe, you know, self-sufficiency is sort of like this, prized pedestalized thing like you know be independent do it yourself mm -hmm. figure it out on your own and sometimes we take that same um information or or like approach to relationships mm -hmm. and we're like well you just need to figure out your stuff and i'll figure out mine and i know i've done that in relationship too and then i look back yeah, and i'm like wow like i don't you know i i was kind of taught that but i don't i don't really think this independent thing is really that great in a relationship like at least really when i when i place it in this paradigm um you know this co-regulation that's the word that stands out to me is yeah. this idea that if i if i want to go out on my own and i'm you know and try to work through these exercises and and kind of find my own awareness within within me find my safety mm -hmm. that's great but in some ways i'm like that's a container of experience what happens when i go right into a relationship it's like i'm, I'm dealing with a whole different wiring as soon as that happens mm -hmm. So yeah, how so, do you, what's your view on self-sufficiency and <laughs> that tying into this? Well, that's uh, starting to hit the attachment conversation right on the, right on the head of um, 
people typically are aware of, if they're aware of attachment at all, they're aware of the anxious avoidant, um, maybe disorganized and secure. And the self-sufficiency is generally a really big hallmark of avoiding attachment. And attachment is something that we learn from our, from our parents at a very early age. Like they test for it at, they test to see what the styles are at 10 months old. So this is something that happens wow. like from before we're born up until like 20 months, like our, that's when our attachment system gets set. And if we like, if we don't actually like actively try to change it, that's, that's pretty much what it's going to be our whole life. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting hearing that. I mean, I know that prior to this conversation, but knowing that is like, holy shit. Cause I, I can actually really find more compassion mm -hmm. and more and more grace for myself through my own experience. Cause it's like, Whoa, this was drilled. This was something that was, you know, pre-verbal, Mm -hmm. yeah, was, a lot of it probably wired in at the womb space too yeah it's it's unconsciously like downloaded into our wetware into our hardware so it's encoded into our system and as we grow developmentally we have we have our um, very early attachment strategy and then as we grow developmentally we learn all these other strategies for getting our needs met or how it's not safe to get our needs met and they're all based off of that original um original map that gets instilled into us and it's really intelligent and really powerful and it keeps us keeps us alive um primarily and it's on the level of like when i originally like introduced people into attachment it's on the level of like of a baby crying and the parent coming in and checking in to see what their need actually is because we can't regulate ourselves when we're when we're that young and the the parent is like okay either i'm gonna feed the baby was that it great and that that creates a, an attachment bond that creates the neurobiology inside of us the, the hardwiring of okay i expressed my need it got met by somebody my needs are good and safe in the world and it it's like when i have this feeling it's hunger and it's feels good to actually have that need met and I feel safe in the world knowing that this is all well like pre-conscious levels but we're hardwired to have this this happen and mm -hmm. if we come into a place where our parents aren't particularly attuned to us you know, it starts to create other strategies of recognizing that oh if I if I cry if I try to get my needs met they're not going to be met so I'm not actually going to try to express my needs you learn that it's not okay to express your needs and you just learn how to auto-regulate which is a big part of the of the avoidance strategy and why the self-sufficiency kind of comes online because you're auto-regulating mm -hmm. oh, i'll just do it myself i don't have needs mm -hmm. yeah and so we we literally don't we don't learn what our needs are and that they're okay to express into the world and that the world's going to meet them like a securely attached child like they learn from the get-go that if they have needs, they're going to get expressed and the world's going to meet them. And so why wouldn't they express them? <laughs> yeah, totally. And, it, and it's like, there's a deep irony here because there's there, I think, you don't know how to necessarily place this into the cultural context, like post-World War. And I'm thinking about the baby boomers, but I think their generation really learned this idea of parenting in a way where like, if the baby's crying, like you don't, you don't want to go in, 
answer their call. What's the Dr. Spock thing, right? Because you just let the baby cry, otherwise you make a weak child. Right, and there's that idea like <laughs> your baby's going to be weak and, and he's not going to develop independence mm -hmm. if you go and take care of him. Yeah. But the irony is that the opposite is true, mm -hmm. that the more that that baby is securely attached and, and the needs are met, the more he's willing to go out and explore the world. I think there's something you're saying about that, like the idea like, you know, when we have safety, we're, we're able to actually go and explore the world from that place yeah. and go meet yeah. new people and be independent. But if we don't have that secure attachment, we're going to be a lot, we're going to be almost immobilized or maybe a little bit more frozen and, and less willing to go out and be independent. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And spoke just a little bit to the safety and exploration piece. And that's so much of what creates um, or doesn't create a healthy attachment in a child because we have this need for safety. We need to know that we're safe or needs are going to be met. And we also have this need for exploration. That's how we actually explore the world and learn how to interact with it. And so when a, when a baby is exploring its world, whether it's um, exploring something in its hands or learning to crawl and being able to go into the other room, when they get frightened by something, they come back to the parent for, uh, for regulation, for co-regulation. And that's, that's a natural uh, propensity that we have. It's hardwired into our system. Those are the instincts we come in with. And if, if the parent delights in the child's exploration, they learn that it's okay to go out and explore the world, whether it's food, whether it's success, whether it's just space, whether it's just adventure, and that gets reinforced in a really beautiful way. And they know that if they get frightened, they come back and get regulated. And that, that process gets like deepened of like, okay, it's safe for me to go explore the world and I can come back. And that, that creates this map that we have, this internal working model that we have of, of our world. Yeah, it's funny that this popped in my mind, but I was thinking about this thing that Joe Rogan mentioned on one of his episodes about this fighter who he would take 30 minutes before I can't remember that guy, the fighter's name. I wish I could remember his name. I don't think it was, probably wasn't my, well, Mike Tyson, I'm not sure, but <laughs> somebody took 30 minutes to meditate before his fights mm -hmm. and he just dominated his space. Mm -hmm. And it makes, I didn't quite connect it before to this idea of he was in some ways cultivating this immense amount of safety before going into the ring with another fighter, which is not exactly a safe environment. <laughs> so, <Quite the> opposite. <laughs> so it's funny to think about, wow, I really, you know, can develop this sense of safety in order to go in and then like explore, quote unquote, <laughs> this dangerous <laughs> environment with mm -hmm. a lot more resource. Yeah, yeah, a lot intact. more. Yeah, a lot more presence and focus and concentration. Because when we're when we're in states of activation, which you know just preparing to go into a fight is going to be an activating place. Like we use different circuitry in those states, like different attentional circuitry, and we if we're in sympathetic or dorsal parts of our prefrontal cortex shut down, and so we're not able to make as rational decisions, we're not as connected, we're not as socially engaged as we would be if um, if we weren't in that state of fight or flight or freeze. And so that's one of the like really important pieces of um, both, you know, using meditation as a way of calming our system or using the polyvagal approach to develop intimacy with where am I, what do I need to actually be in a state of 
resource and regulation and where's my partner and what do they need right now are they in an activated state can i help them co-regulate because we we know how to do that with each other or are we both in a state of activation and wow there's no adult in the room let's let's go ahead and take our 30 minutes to come back to a state of at least one of us come back to a state of regulation so we can help the other person co-regulate right yeah, yeah and if you're if, if you're you're able to find a specialist or, or go and sit with someone and actually learn this process mm-hmm. in which you can co-regulate i think that, that there's so much value in that because i mean it's a lot of different experience being able to do that and then sit with somebody really presencing you and, and watching and being tracking your system and then being able to, you know, talk through that and process it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really key to be able to know where we are in our states of activation versus regulation. If we're going to try to be in, you know, healthy relationship with somebody um, because we can understand that if we are in a state of activation, we're going to be adding a lot to the story that's that's happening in the moment. And while we both need a place to be able to express that, um, it's ideal to be able to, if like we're really wanting to like, let's say problem solve or be in a healthy relationship, being able to come back to a place of regulation before just really trying to unpack the like who, what, when, where, and why of what just happened in this particular activation. And one of the, let's say one of the big reasons for that is the attachment traumas that we go through. And our, we have a form of memory called implicit memory that basically remembers all of our attachment disruptions, our attachment disappointments, our uh, existential anguishes that we go through. And it gets stored in our system, particularly in our body. And when in our bodies, our polyvagal system, our amygdala, our neuroception is always on the lookout for anything that reminds us of something that's traumatized us in the past. And so whenever we remember, whenever we experience something in our environment or a relationship that is even a remote similarity to that, we'll go into a, into a reaction around it. We'll go we'll recognize that, oh, I'm not safe here. And that may be because of something that we experienced a long time ago, and there's a little flavor of it in the present moment. But if we're just in relationship to that response, instead of the knowing that it's like, okay, I'm having an experience, but I still want to be in relationship with this person. And I know we need to be in a place of regulation to do so. Like if we, if we don't have all of that online, um, it becomes a very, very tricky territory that I'm sure many of us many of us are very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's what makes life really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, interesting and challenging, too. Challenging, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's plenty of ways to make life interesting from a regulated space, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of interesting is not always, it's not always the most fun because, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to think back on relationships I've had and, and see in which, wow, we really... I mean, we just weren't in a, in a safe place. Both people were in this, you know, fight flight thing. We didn't mm-hmm. establish this ground. And I think that's really what the value is in relationship is to be able to come back to a ground mm-hmm. where you're both like, okay, we're standing here. We're both okay. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to, to attack you. You're not trying to attack me. Like now we can actually resolve whatever is going on. Yeah. And even from that place, I mean, I, th- I think it's worth taking some time 
um, to let things, let the dust settle and still, you know, reflect before you go back into the story. Um, Richard Rudd talked about a process in which um, he's the, the author of the Gene Keys and mm-hmm. he wrote The Art of Contemplation and he, he talks about this idea of dissonance. And in the moment of dissonance, we don't always have the right words. We don't always have the right way of offering feedback for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And if we can allow the dissonance, um, this this moment, I can't remember, remember what he named the stage, but it's a moment where you basically um, kind of just let things settle and you, you just kind of, you don't jump into figuring it out. Mm-hmm. You allow it to just kind of take its form. And then when you have the words, then then you can share. Yeah. And if the other person doesn't, then maybe you need a little more time to kind of just let the dissonance um, and that chaotic, chaotic energy sort of settle into a place where like, oh, okay, like I actually see what's going on here. And that's a very different conversation mm-hmm. than just kind of going in and throwing words yeah. at each other and yeah. trying to figure it out from that. Yeah. And the neurobiological principles behind that is if we go into a state of activation, we get a big adrenaline dump and then we have a cortisol dump and that keeps us in the, in the fight and flight. And that's, that's not exactly where you want to try to like work something out with your beloved. And it takes time for those chemicals to get processed through our liver. It takes like 20, 30 minutes. Wow. So, so there's like, there's real reasons of why you'd want to do that. So you actually have your reasoning abilities, your rational abilities, the, the ventral vagal, the one that's about safety and connection is our social engagement system. And when that's online, we're actually tuned into other people in very, very real ways. There's all sorts of ways that we're hardwired for human connection. It's like, it's the strength of our species. It's what allows us to form communities and villages and societies. And if we're aware of all of those systems, we can utilize them for for actual connection and actual safety. And in our relationships, whether that's our primary intimate relationships or that with our friends and confidants or our coworkers or whoever whoever we're in relationship with, because all of this plays out and just relationship with our life too when we really want to look at it. Um, it's so important and valuable to actually be in a place where we can tune in to another person. Like there's very, like when we go into a state of activation, we tune out of the human connection level. Like there's ways that we unconsciously read all this information that's on each other's faces. Our internal organs are connected through our vagus system to our face. And we read that to know, is this person safe? What are they feeling? Like, what do they need? And there's a little, little, tiny little uh, muscle in the ear that changes the frequencies that, we're, that we pay attention to. And when we get activated, that takes us out of the human voice realm because there's all sorts of cues of safety that get uh, delivered through hmm. sound, through prosody, through the sound of our speech. That's uh, like, you know, the, how a mother talks to a child. I'm just like, like these sounds that are reassuring and just like warm and welcoming versus just you're safe. Yes. That's a pretty different energy. <laughs> I felt yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And we like those things have to be online if we're actually going to cultivate connection and intimacy and depth and um, real love with, with each other and just real compassion with each other. And there was a, there's a, piece there um 
Well, there's there's an idea you were mentioning to me. I don't know. This might jog your mm-hmm. um, pulling your point, but yeah. I know you mentioned to me this idea of unwinding the patterns, and that's one side yeah. of it. Yeah. But then the other side is developing the new patterns, the new wiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that can make relating so hard and relationships so hard is because at a very early age we learned it wasn't okay to have needs or we learned that we have to take care of the other person's needs to get our needs taken care of and none of that is an actual authentic expression of needs and if our if our needs aren't being taken care of in relationship we generally won't feel safe and then some sort of anger is going to come up around that and it's it's all very indirect instead of actually just being like hey i need to i really need to feel you right now or we need to um cooperate on this particular goal we have in our relationship like the cooperative behaviors can't be there if your authentic needs and vulnerability aren't actually on the table yeah and you're not exactly going to trust your partner if you if you're in that space i mean you may you may even you're just not really trusting life if you're you know there it's interesting to tie trust into it i think because Mm -hmm. yeah it's just kind of reflecting on this idea of, of generally trusting life and in a global pandemic or in a relationship, you know, what is making me not trust, like what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if that, if that, you know, the mechanism of safety, the, the state of safety and I have my, my needs met is, is not, is just not available. Mm-hmm then we're going to have a really hard time trusting life or trusting another person. Yeah. yeah. Trusting ourselves. Yeah. Well, if we, if we can't trust our parents in the, in the very early stages of our life, we learn that we, we can't trust other people or we can't, or if we don't get like delight in our own states, we can't, we learn, we can't actually trust to be vulnerable with that. So I have to caretake somebody else. And we develop all of these strategies and these these um, constrictions uh, that don't allow us to open to the fullness of reality, and it creates quite literally our function of self, like the small s self that they talk about in the wisdom traditions. Mm-hmm. And if we yeah, if we can't actually open to reality, or what they call surrender, generally, which is just the opposite of holding ourselves. In all these ways, it gets really hard to be on in a close, intimate relationship or to be in like an authentic spiritual path where we actually have to surrender to reality, which is you know, sort of not doing. And how do you do that? By trusting. Mm-hmm. By being able to trust on such a deep level that we can actually release these contractions of self that we had to learn of how to protect ourselves, how to actually keep our our actual vulnerability or our needs protected or like, yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. Yeah. I mean, I think about the way that the, I mean, the term luminous really comes, I think from this idea of, um, I'm sure it comes from many different places, but in, in the Zen tradition, it means like a pristine awareness. And I, I think about the idea of, of emptiness, mm-hmm. you know, and this idea of um, it's not really, like you're not present and there's a fullness in that emptiness. But I see the tie-in that, that Zen has in that, in that process of um, emptying 
like the small self mm -hmm. and you know the pitcher whatever your whatever if your life is a pitcher holding water and the and finally you know might have a satori moment or awakening where the bottom falls out and the water is out and all of a sudden this vessel is empty but it allows for the fullness of life to enter mm -hmm. um it feels like there's a correlation to this this unraveling of the nervous system like what it what's being held on this neurophysiological biological level mm -hmm. um when that when you really surrender and you let go and, and you really relax because my experience of being in session with you has been you know really really deeply relaxing and it's been like this is the work whoa mm -hmm. like it really is because yeah. i can feel how much I've just been holding in a lot of ways it's unconscious and a lot of ways it's just happening and I don't really notice it. Mm -hmm. But when we start dropping in, I'm like, whoa, like my shoulders are, you know, they're not totally relaxed. Like I could lean more into the chair and that process of surrendering is really, it brings in so much more vitality, mm -hmm. so much more um, ability to just yeah be replenished bring more energy into more of my life mm -hmm. yeah and so this is a pretty pretty we'll say deep end of the of the topic and it's fun to explore um yeah i mean there's a very real way in which we learn to hold ourselves and that that's we'll say easily visible if you know bodies and um, body workers and things like that um and then there's more subtle ways that we hold ourselves that we protect ourselves and those, so much of that is a result of the attachment traumas that we go through, this most fundamental level of shaping our mind and shaping what the world is. And if we can learn to tune into that level of our experience, which is really hard to do on our own, mm -hmm. um, because it is a relational process and it is a process. So it's in, come at it from more of the you know, contemplative uh, side of things. It's not a fixed self. It's not something that has inherent existence, but it's a thing that we've learned. And inside of that learning, it's a, there's a certain kind of holding. And mm -hmm. ideally, you know, we'd come into a reality where our parents just delighted in us and had us feel all of this safety and care and knowing that the world is really okay and that we're safe and that we can be open to ourselves, the people around us, the environment around us. And from that basis, we can actually start to continue to explore what reality is and all these deep and subtle dimensions, all these uh, very, very etheric dimensions, if you will. When, and if that doesn't happen, you know, we end up holding ourselves in all these different ways. And then we can try to explore reality, but there's these solidified obstacles. And one of the, let's say one of the things that I see quite often is, you know, meditators go into these deep practices. They start to like feel into their experience. And all of a sudden, all these memories start to pop up, all of these uh, negative, afflictive experiences. And the advice they're given a lot of time is just to ignore it. And that's it's not particularly the healthiest thing to do from from my perspective because these 
it's an opportunity for actual healing, but a lot of that stuff actually has to be healed in relationship. And it's, you can do some of that work on a cushion by yourself, but ideally you have somebody there that can actually like see your system, watch it, track it, and help us release those constrictions that we're unconsciously holding. Because one of the, one of the really important things about the early attachment models or the internal working models is that we have this edge of what our world is and it's internal representation. It's, uh, it's a map that we sort of make up and hold on a felt sense. And when we come up to the edge of it, that's when we start to feel a lack of safety. That's when we start to get dysregulated. But everything that's on the other side of that map doesn't exist to us. And one of the ways that you know we've talking spoken about it is like people have these upper limits, right? where they start to like hit a certain level of success in their life and they just can't get past it for some reason. There's some sort of self-sabotage or something that comes online. And that's a really lovely example of an internal working model of it's, it's not okay for me to have more than this. And then all of these unconscious patterns like will, will start to play out to keep us from hitting the edge of that map. And it's not stuff we can usually see on our own, but if somebody's there being a well-regulated presence, being like, hey, it's safe to be here. It's safe to feel the, this lack of safety and we're going to co-regulate here. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to like drop into our bodies, feel the state that our system is in. We're going to add up a bit and we're going to know that, yes, right here together, this is, this is good and we deserve to be here too. We can start to sort of massage open the edges of those um, maps that are buried inside of our inside of our experience. And so that we don't self-sabotage anytime we try to do something good or that we don't, um, you know, put 30, 40 years on a cushion. And then anytime we interact with somebody, we're, you know, we're a little bit of a dick, <laughs> which is a common, common yeah. experience inside of a lot of meditators. Yeah, and there's there's that idea of spiritual bypass, which I think you know is not always conscious. It's it's, and and it's interesting how it, you know, a lot of the ways we're taught, it's like we listen to an authority, you know, whether it's a parent or a teacher, whoever it is, meditation instructor who says, yeah, just uh, you know, we don't want to when your baby cries, we don't want to go in. Or when, you know, something comes up for you, just, you're just going to let that go and drop, try to drop further in, but, Mm -hmm. but you're not really able to sink deeper. You're just kind of pushing away a thing and that's going to have a reverse effect on you too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On, on the meditation cushion, we can say deactivate our attachment system because we're, we're not actually connected with somebody else. So that, that system which is like hardwired in here isn't isn't on isn't isn't alive in the moment and so we can drop into these really beautiful states and have all this kind of access but then when we actually come back into interaction with somebody those those patterns are still there that that way of knowing that i'm not safe i'm not going to I'm not gonna express my needs to this person, my authentic needs to this person in order to actually be in connection. It's like one of the one of the things from my tradition that really got me on this path of exploring interconnection is part of our um, sutras, part of our morning ritual is 
one of the pieces is that the, the truth of it is, is that we're interconnected, interdependent and interpenetrating. And so we're, we're not separate. And while our small self, like we'll say is illusory in a certain sense, it's also very real in another because it is just a way we learn to hold ourselves and we can learn to on hold ourselves given, given a bit of time and uh, focus on it. And it's, it's not a conceptual thing. Like you're not gonna like go and look with your mind itself and find, find ourself, but we can actually feel it. We can feel the edges of this contraction that's in our experience. And then if we hit that and it's unconsciously we hit that edge, all sorts of strategies come into place to keep us safe and they're usually not particularly healthy. Yeah, it's like you said, I think at one point we're, we're oftentimes bringing in the wiring of our five-year-old into an adult relationship or experience at work or whatever it is into our lives. And it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just that, that, that wiring is there. Yeah. And a lot of this is very unconscious, mm -hmm. um, but, but really stepping into more of that, you know, the subtle beauty of, of life and the experience and bringing in a deeper level of connection to everything in your, in your world. If you want that, I mean, this is, this is to, to me at this point in my life, a, a way of looking at the fundamental level of it. Cause I don't think there's, it doesn't seem like there's really more, anything more fundamental than this in terms of the, the human experience, this nervous system, this, mm -hmm. Um, this attachment system that's developed at such a young age, yeah. practically, you know, yeah, as we, a newborn. If we ask, what is our relationship to reality? Like, this is the first place that that starts to get shaped. Like, is it okay for you to have feelings? Is it okay for you to have an internal relationship to yourself? Is it okay for you to have relationship to your caregivers? What about your environment? What about food? All of that. And that, that is the first thing that we learn and that gets wired in, like quite literally wired in. And then as we grow into all these different developmental stages, we learn these different strategies of how to stay safe and connected and protected and all of that. And, you know, if they're not optimal, we end up with, uh, you know, like drug addiction and, um, uh, eating to, to placate ourselves or zoning out in unhealthy ways, like five day long Netflix binges, you know, probably aren't particularly good for people, but there's, you know, there's ways to do that consciously. And we can do a lot of work on ourselves in a lot of different ways, but unless we really get down to this attachment level and healing the attachment disruptions or the attachment distortions, like that's going to continue to get enacted and played out in, in all of our relationships. And that is our relationship to reality as well. And when you like really understand the strategies that the different attachment styles, the anxious, avoidant, disorganized, what they're doing, they're all trying to get their needs met, but it's in very indirect ways. Mm -hmm. When you can really understand that, that language and see it, and see how it's playing out. You can see it again and again and again in the world, even even with like deeply practiced human beings, let alone people that are you know haven't done any. Yeah, it reminds me of this the idea of the hologram. You know where there's 
whatever we do in one area of life is usually how we do it in all areas of life. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, it feels like, you know, we're like, I'm going to bring a certain expansive level of my own system to whatever I do. And the more that I can expand that, the more I can kind of feel my edge, like you were saying, and kind of try to bump that up a little bit and see if I can bring my conscious awareness into more Mm -hmm. of the experience I'm having. And then I'm really expanding everything. I mean, I'm expanding my world. I'm also being more of a, excuse me, a magnetic uh, magnet Mm -hmm. for abundance. Yeah. You're literally opening your system to more success or more abundance where it wasn't available before because you had your own unconscious blocks there. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're, let's say self-worth is limited by something like that opportunity can like an opportunity to expand your self-worth and come into your worldview. And you're just like, Nope, I won't even see it. I won't even see it as an option. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a little, a little bit problematic. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, I guess I'm, how do you see man- manifestation, all the manifestation language and all of that playing into this? I mean, I, I suppose we're in some ways uncovering how it plays in right now. It's like it, yeah. if you're you're attracting your world to you and, you and you're only willing to kind of extend your energy or your, your boundary to a certain point, you're not going to necessarily expand that rapidly yeah. or draw in that kind of abundance. Yeah, I draw really big distinctions between just like a conceptual like we're going to hold the concept of I'm going to bring abundance into my world versus like, how do I feel when I think about something like abundance? Like, how does, how do I feel? Do I like start to, do I start to vibrate with (laughs) activation or is it just like a natural, like, yeah, like, of course I deserve that. Of course that's what the quality of my life and what that needs to be. And there's a, we'll say a lot of nuance in there. Like you can, if, if a parent rewards the behaviors of a child, oh, you did such a good job like getting that thing instead of just delighting in the child, like just delighting that they did anything in general, we can wire kids to have their self-value be on their, their output. How much productivity, how much success in the world do I have that, and that's how valued I, I am versus how valued am I? Intrinsically. Yeah, ex- I'm like extensively valued. Let me bring that into the world. And there's all sorts of really subtle distinctions that can happen inside of, inside of that. And so, you know, one person may look particularly successful in the world, but they're actually doing it because that's what their self-worth is tied into. Of I have to produce in order to be loved versus I am loved and like abundance is, is my world. And if, you know, if people just have like a conceptual understanding of that, I mean, great, but let's actually get down into the felt experience and see where somebody's value like is like, is it okay for them to actually like have enough money to survive or are they not even in that place? Or is it okay for them to, go after what the their dreams and their values and all of that and you can explore that on a very deeply felt sense interpersonally like relationally 
and there's there's a lot of value in that and then that that same sort of framework can apply to a lot of different areas of life and there's, there's a lot of we'll say a lot of nuance in that in that conversation that usually i do like just one-on-one -on -one explorations around that yeah it's really amazing it's amazing work mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad to uh have met you <laughs> just as a being and a person and the fact that you do this work it's just mm -hmm. I mean, it's definitely deep in my world and very appreciative because I, I mean, I've been living and hitting my upper limits and doing, you know, I, I personally can account to having learned that, having learned that um, picture of if I do a thing, like if I get the good grades, mm -hmm. then I'm loved yeah. and I get my reward. Uh -huh. And it's like, dang, that really did trickle into my life. Mm -hmm. And what we've been exploring that's been so valuable to me, just, just sharing my personal experience of this work is that, I mean, it's this intrinsic value. It's coming back to the, just that I'm alive, like that I'm a person, mm -hmm. like I have value because I'm breathing that I just, because I'm me. Yeah. And it seems like you're really touching on that point of like, especially as a parent, like delighting in the kid mm -hmm. because they're there, like yeah. for no other reason, but, but because they're, they are a human being. Yeah. And we can, you know, tie it back into the spiritual search, right? like what better place to start the exploration of reality than where we are right now? Instead of like, okay, I need to go over there to have some sort of fulfillment so I can feel okay. So I can like beauty or success or attainment is out, is out outside of myself, if you will, which is, you know, that's mm -hmm. not particularly, a, not particularly true when you explore it. Yeah. Um, but like how okay am I right here? right now okay like everything's beautiful and perfect as it is and how much can we actually open to that so when we really start to open to the, the the silence and the beauty that's already here like life is good enough like the simple feeling of being like that's enough yeah there's some there's some some real wisdom in that i, I think about the idea of um that term, I don't know if it's an Ayurvedic term or a yogic term, but sattva mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, there's, well, there's the three gunas, which are rajasic, tamasic, and sattvic. Mm -hmm. And rajasic is, a, is kind of a spicy quality. It's like active and tamasic is more of an inertia resting quality. Sattvic is sort of a blend. It's, I mean, it, I think about the word satisfaction mm -hmm. as a derivative of it. And, that sat that sapphic quality arises out of sort of just the contentment of what is mm -hmm. and and then from that place bliss yeah. and yeah. it's amazing how much um we can actually experience in terms of abundance that's right in front of our nose mm -hmm. right here yeah. without anything to do mm -hmm. yeah and that's the the place of connection like how deeply are we connected to our world that's right here right now and how much can we share with our beloved and open to the increasingly both like subtle and profound and blissful and clear and empty states like the more that we're actually here the more we can do that with somebody and the more safety and trust that we have like in in reality itself, but also in our in our 
relationships because the more that we can actually just continue to open to what's here instead of having to look somewhere else for our joy our satisfaction our attainment or, or bliss the more hedonistic uh, pursuits if you will we can actually just open to the the wellness the well-being the goodness the basic goodness that we already have access to but it's it's quiet it's in the it's in the silence mm-hmm. it's, uh, thomas martin he's not Thomas Martin, Thomas Keating, as he likes to say, like, you know, God speaks in the silence. And if we can like really like open our experience to what's here without actually having to avoid it, which, you know, a lot of, we'll say many, many, many of us do. Yeah. Um, we can actually start to just share in this simple awareness and very simple but elaborate compassion. Like, yeah, it's really good to be here with you. And we can learn how to do that more and more and more and more. And having an actual like secure attachment in our system, which is a very, you know, very real thing. Um, we actually get to do that. And we get to know that it's like, okay, I can be open and vulnerable here. I don't have to be closed off and protected or I don't have to like manipulate you into taking care of me. I can just be honest, authentic, present, well-regulated and here. And we'll say in the Western society, like that's not generally our baseline. That's not usually where we start because just the normal uh, running around in We'll say the American dream is it's a activated state in itself a lot of the time. In and, the pursuit of something being outside of ourselves yeah, or over there. Yeah, and just just even the, the word pursuit. Yeah, just the normal levels of activation that we have. Like if you one of the things I've looked at is like, okay, where where are the Eastern wisdom traditions starting from? What are their what are their bases like versus the Western uh, practitioner? And the, the, you know, the, some of the Eastern teachers, some of the Tibetan teachers, they grew up on the side of a mountain, like herding sheep and yaks for like most of their life. And that's, you know, a little bit different than growing up on a iPad that's just stimulating your brain or um, growing up in a, you know, like Detroit or it's yeah, a little suburbia. Yeah. Where if you look at, you know, some of the, Tibetan culture, they've had compassion as a basis, like a, a given inside of that and that deep connection, that deep care. And then growing up with that as a secure base and then going into the meditative traditions where like um, Alan Wallace, one of the things he realized working with his Tibetan teachers, like the first instruction they would give is like, okay, relax. And then, okay, we're going to start doing this with our attention. We're going to start going into Shamatha and what they meant by relax it's <laughs> so different than the baseline of what westerners mean by relax if you're in a sympathetic state a state of activation and um, just the polyvagal stuff is the ventral state the sympathetic state and then the dorsal um, ventral is safety and social engagement and then sympathetic is fight and flight and then dorsal is freeze and immobilization if you're in a sympathetic state all the time, which a lot of people are and just don't realize it because it's their normal set point, you relaxing, you're relaxing in the sympathetic state a bit and you're using different circuitry. You're, you're 
you're literally using different intentional circuitry. And so you're trying, like a lot of people are trying to like start meditation from a place of threat detection <laughs> instead of like deep ventral um, regulation, deep ventral connection. And then the meditative states really come about when we have that ventral um, ventral regulation, which is social, combined with the deep relaxation of our dorsal system. So there's a whole like series of like training and understanding of like, oh, how do we actually work our nervous system consciously so that I know if I'm feeling safe or not, if I'm feeling relaxed or not. And instead of just using like meditation as a trying to relax a little bit, we can actually really sit on the cushion and enter into these um, deeper states of exploration and doing the the attachment work directly lets us actually open up the edges of our of our self so then we can actually start to we'll say sort of see through it in the ways that they recommend in the traditions instead of having okay there's a constriction over here there's a constriction over here there's a constriction over here that my system is expertly designed from keeping me from keeping me from seeing it and so okay i'm going to like have this little window of like oh there myself is myself is uh illusory it's gone <laughs> until i interact with somebody 20 minutes from now <laughs> and then it's fully back oh. and all of these strategies are back into play yeah that's a pretty different <laughs> different spiritual path yeah or you know path of um yeah absorbing absorbing more into this this incredible experience that's mm -hmm. available to us mm -hmm. um yeah those protective patterns it's it's amazing that the thing that standed out to me um was the the I, the uh camera where you put it but it's like the the protective layers that they're expertly designed to be really to kind of just operate in a way where we don't know about it and mm -hmm. to protect us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're they're hard to to spot on your own. Yeah, because they're they're designed to keep pain out of our own awareness. Like these these attachment traumas that happened when we were younger, were they're basically existential threats to our survival. And if we were constantly aware of all of those all the time, that would hurt a lot. That would be like an overwhelming amount of pain. So our system's well-designed to sort of keep that out of our operating awareness. And it, we develop all sorts of strategies to not see that. And if we're just trying to look for that on our own, it's really hard. Um, it becomes particularly easy when you're in a, we'll say, unhealthy relationship. There it is, there it is, there it is. <laughs> that hurts. Um, but in, like, if we have enough, we'll say, enough tools, enough understanding of, oh, these places that hurt aren't things that we should, like, avoid, but they're actually opportunities to reintroduce safety and re-regulation and an expanse of our world in very real ways. We can... Use, the, use them as that, instead of just going on like, onto the cushion and just ignoring it. Just re repress this experience that's trying to be healed, right? Like that's, it's not a, it's not a healthy approach. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, relationships are rife with opportunities for actually doing that and just being able to 
know, do I feel safe or not? Does my partner feel safe or not? And what can we, what can we do from here? If they don't feel safe, let me be that source of safety and get them back to a place of regulation that we can unpack what just happened. If we both don't feel safe, if we're both activated, we have the prior agreements to know that we need to take some time to come into a place of regulation and then we can actually be connected. And then when we're in connection together, how much bliss can we feel? How much love can we feel? We can actually start to use this inborn circuitry that we have, this interconnected um, circuitry to be like, oh, I can feel my partner's bliss in my body. Let me, let me, let me like become more blissful from that and let me like consciously give that back to them as well. And we can start, we can start doing that together. Recycling that's, that. That's, yeah. that's, that's real too. Yeah, I mean, that's, and in some ways, that's kind of like a fruit to look forward to in, in terms of doing some of this work. Yeah, it's one of the, as I'll say, one of the carrots I like to dangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good one for sure. Yeah, yeah and, and bringing in them to the deeper levels of intimacy with your partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of amazing yeah. energetic bliss there. Yeah, and one yeah. of the, one of the things that's most important to know about this process is that forgiveness and loving kindness for yourself are really big first steps on this process because we do have these attachment traumas that create these attachment distortions the um the anxious the avoidant disorganized all of that we could have a much bigger conversation about those at some point too um but that stuff happened when we were like six months old and like having compassion for those experiences in our system because like what what could our six-month-old self done to have gotten better care nothing not much yeah <laughs> we did what we did and we ended up with the systems that we have and we can gain conscious control over that i think control is not even the right word but conscious relationship and be like okay wow there's this way that's a little bit dysfunctional in myself around getting my needs met. I I learned a way that wasn't fully healthy. And so let's go ahead and start to shift that so I can start to have more safety and more openness in my experience. Um, One of the, one of the, I'll say revelations that I really loved coming across uh, in my, my own studies is that what we mean by secure attachment in the Western tradition is what they mean by non-attachment in the Eastern. So there's, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a language is a little bit different, but it's like, okay, our secure attachment is just openness because you're not actually protecting yourself from the world. So if you're securely attached, you can actually be open and you can have non-attachment because that the attachment in the Eastern traditions are the clinging of the ego. I'm going to push something away. I'm going to pull it towards me. I'm going to be indifferent to it. And we can learn to feel that directly and recognize like, oh, okay. Something's at play here. Some sort of strategy. Let me do the inner work. Let me do work with my partner or do it with my my, um, healer around opening this back up. So then I can practice non-attachment in a secure way, if you will. (laughs) <laughs> that's an awesome distinction that you made there yeah yeah because yeah, it can get a little confusing if you if you are interested in eastern traditions and you start learning that language mm-hmm. 
and then you're kind of coming back into this. But yeah, I guess if you're if you are clinging or you're you are in an unhealthy bondage to something, that, then likely you're you're not in a secure attachment. Mm-hmm. You're you've got something else going on. Yeah, yeah, and it's been one of the really beautiful things to be looking at the nature of self through the through the Buddhist traditions and to also looking at it through the Western psychotherapeutic traditions because there's some really beautiful cutting edge work being done in the Western approaches where there's a lot of focus on like, okay, what is the self? Like, what is that? How is it created? How is it constituted? And so much of what they're looking at is like, okay, this is an interpersonal process. Um, The distortions in it are caused by attachment traumas. They're really, really impactful. It's like getting a thousand paper cuts that add up over time and they shape the shape our self-system, shape how we actually relate to the world and what can we do to actually heal that. And it's really stunning to um, see what those approaches have been. And there's a lot of like neuro, like the neurobiology of it's really understood and unpacked really, really gorgeously. And then it leaves us in a space if we do the work to actually heal these traumas that are in our system, which can be done. Um, There's always going to be little traces of, of them for sure, but like the big reactionary stuff around it can be opened up and healed from there what can we actually do for heal like for opening into reality opening into these dimensions of well-being as a uh, alan wallace talks about the eudomania the well-being that we bring into a space for no reason mm-hmm. just how much are we capable of bringing in because that's our birthright bliss well-being goodness it's already here we don't have to go look for it. We just have to uncover it and allow it to flow through. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. Beautifully said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you got so much to share to the world. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, yeah appreciate this uh, this time with you. Yeah. Get to been, explore. It's been great connecting. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there anything else that you might want to mention? And mm. How can people reach you? And Yeah, so... Um, bunanbrown.com or just through you can find my email address on the website and everything and to give to sort of redirect people to resources around this like deb dana's works are really 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 key um, and really easy and accessible resource and she's got uh, two books out polyvagal theory and therapy which i mentioned earlier which is really really good and then was 50 client-centered practices for safety and connection which is nice. And then a sounds true program called uh, befriending your nervous system. And you can pick up any one of those and just go through the exercises in there to really gain intimacy with your nervous system. And if you have a partner, have them do it. And there's a way of you basically make maps of what happens inside of your nervous system and what it takes to get back to a state of regulation. And you can share those resources with a partner. And then uh, yeah, find, finding myself or somebody else that's really skilled in some of the attachment therapies that are out there, the attachment modalities of learning how to be with somebody, learning how to be connected with them and how to actually start to open these contractions that are inside of our systems and do so in an interconnected way because there's, uh, there's a lot of beauty in that. Like, what is it like to not have to be protected when I'm with 
somebody else or what what is it like to be able to establish like conscious healthy boundaries and have somebody meet me in them instead of blowing past them yeah awesome mm -hmm. well every time around you I'd, I'd instantly drop into a more relaxed state so mm -hmm. um definitely i highly recommended to go see you in person if possible and mm -hmm. thanks for sharing the resources and uh yeah, I look forward to our next conversation. I'm sure there's a lot more we can explore yeah, together. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Boonan. Yeah, thank you so much.